you pray with me? Father, we, we bow in your presence in this moment. God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Father, we are grateful for your word. God, it is a grace in our life that you have given us your truth. And so, God, I pray that, that you would use your word this morning to draw us close to you. God, I pray that in this time you would help us to better understand what it means that you, oh Jesus, are light of the world and what it means to follow you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Turn with me this morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 4, as we continue walking through the first gospel. Matthew chapter 4 will be in verses 12 through 22. It's a a large chunk of scripture, and it's really two segments that we'll seek to cover this morning. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read the first section, and then we'll come back to the second section And read it later on in the sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to continue reading. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, as we back up to to verse 12, we, we read right away that this happens. We don't know the exact timing, the exact chronology of what's going on here, but we, we read that it happens after John had been arrested. And we, we learn, you can write Matthew 14, 4 as your cross-reference there, where we learn more about John's arrest. And essentially, John is arrested because he is, he is proclaiming truth. He is calling people on the carpet for their sin, and Herod Antipas does not like that. And so Herod arrests him, which eventually results in the beheading of John later. But as John is in prison, Jesus withdraws into Galilee. He leaves Nazareth where he was, and he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum is on the the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. 
And what Matthew's doing here is something we've talked about already in this series when we walk through Matthew is, is he is anchoring his gospel in real places, among real people, among real events. And he's writing to people saying this is where it happened, this is when it happened, this is who it happened around. And so the people see this and they know that Matthew is writing fact. His, his gospel is sound, his testimony is solid, the readers knew it. They knew of these areas and so they knew that he was speaking the truth. And so Jesus goes and he, he works there or lives in Capernaum. And this is a place where, if you might, you might recall, that he does a lot of his ministry. He does a lot of great and mighty works in and around the area of Capernaum. So much so that later in Matthew eleven twenty three and 24, Jesus actually denounces Capernaum because of their lack of faith and says, listen, if, if, if others had seen everything you have seen, then, then they would have believed, but you haven't. You haven't. It is a, a bad state for you that you haven't. And we see immediately, we see Matthew doing two things. Now, hopefully you're, you're seeing these over and over and you're going, yeah, I know, we've talked about those things. But I want you to see them because Matthew is driving home a point. The first thing we see is that Matthew refers to Galilee as Galilee, um, let's see, I'm losing my spot here, uh, Galilee, um, Galilee of the Gentiles. He's, he's referring to Isaiah 9 here and he, it's Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, literally what it says is Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the nations, the, the ethnos, the peoples. So he's talking in verse 15, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what is the point we've talked about in Matthew? That he's writing to a Jewish audience, right, about a Jewish Messiah, but a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah who, what, came to save those from the nations. He's not just the Messiah of the Jews, but he is the Messiah who's come, who's the Savior of all who would have faith in him. And so this Jewish Messiah has come to declare salvation to the nations. And so he again reminds us this is who he comes to. So Jesus does a large portion of his ministry in a place that is not just Jewish, but is Jewish and Gentile in audience. It's a land that is described here as a land that is dwelling in darkness, a people who are dwelling in darkness. Now, I, I would just say briefly, we don't, we don't need to read over this and fail to see a demonstration of God's grace here. We need to be reminded that God shows his grace in sending Christ to live among these people from the nations. These people did not earn the, the presence of the Messiah. They did not merit him. They did not deserve him. But God, in his gracious love and kindness, sends the Messiah to live among them. In his mercy, he sends light into a dark land. And that light is the light of Christ. And the simple question that that we can ask at this point is, do we recognize God's graces in our lives? Do we recognize the things that God graciously does in our lives to show his kindness and his goodness and his love and his concern for us? We should think about that and look for those graces in our lives. The second thing that Matthew is doing that we've talked much about is in verses 14 to 16. What does he do? He's anchoring the gospel. He's anchoring Christ to what? The Old Testament prophecies, we've seen this over and over and over and over again. The prophecy is fulfilled once again in Christ. He's referencing Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. It's almost a direct quote. The only reason it's not a direct quote is that in verse 15, Matthew just hits kind of the high points of the places, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, whereas in Isaiah, he just elaborates each one of those and describes it more. Matthew's just going, Here, here's your geographical reference. Here's what Isaiah said. It's the same thing right here, right there. That's where Christ came. That's where he dwelled in Capernaum, in that area. 
May he comes and he dwells so that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Christ comes and he comes in fulfillment of prophecy. And we see that again over and over and over again. Matthew is continuing to build his case to an almost overwhelming point in just four chapters. He's already identified six different prophecies that Christ fulfills in coming. He's only four chapters into a 28-chapter gospel account. Four chapters in, he says, here's six ways, six specific prophecies that Christ fulfills. It's estimated that in the life of Christ, there's over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled by Christ. Some of you may have heard the, the, the mathematics of that are astounding. That, that just eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person is the likelihood of one in ten to the 17th power. That, 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 the way a mathematician described that, and I think a lot of you in here have heard this, but the mathematician has described that as if you took the state of Texas and covered it, I think it's two feet deep in quarters, and you mark one quarter, and then you send a blind person out there to find that one quarter, and then he just sits, sticks his hand down, and the first try finds that quarter. That's the likelihood of Christ, or one person, period, fulfilling just eight prophecies. But yet, in Christ, over 300 are fulfilled. 300. Now, I, I know that sitting in here today, some of you are skeptics. Some, some of you would be skeptical to, to Christ. Is this really real? Is it true? Should I really believe? Why would all these people believe this? Some listening online would be the same. Some of you just don't know. And, and I would say if you're, if you're at a point where you're saying, you know, I think this is probably just the, the, the creation of some religious leaders. Or I, I think someone just made all this up. Or I, I think anyone could have fulfilled those prophecies. If that's you, I, I would just ask you, have you seriously considered the evidence? And by seriously considering the evidence, I don't mean have you seriously heard what somebody said and going, hmm, let me think about that. Okay. Now, I mean, have you seriously taken and examined the evidence for Christ? Have you, have you looked and searched and, and analyzed and taken the body of evidence that's before you and gone, okay, I have a decision to make? Now, here, here's some questions. Is your objection really against Jesus? If you're sitting in here and you're skeptical, is your objection that you have, is it really Jesus? Or is it something, just a, a refusal to let go of some kind of anger or hurt or bitterness or resentment you have towards someone perhaps it was someone in the church perhaps it was some way that the church treated you or or made you feel at some point in time and perhaps that could have been entirely wrong that person or that individual could have been entirely wrong but is that what's holding you back from submitting to christ to following christ to trusting christ to seeing that he truly is who the scriptures testify that he is Here's another question. Have, have you really studied the integrity of the Bible? Have you truly sat down and gone, okay, if this is supposed to be the Word of God, if this is the holy book and, and the, the very Word, the inspired Word of God, if that's what Christians say and, and that's what it is, then, then let, me, let me just look into this and see, is it really something that just a bunch of religious leaders put together and, and fabricated and, and mashed together and they kept some things out because they didn't want this in there, but they really wanted that in there, and so they put it together? Have you really examined and done some study, like taken the time to do some research and look at the integrity of the Bible, the testimony of Scripture, the fact that it is trustworthy, that it is true, and all those things that people will say, well, it's just this, it's just that, really aren't true. 
Have you done the research for yourself? Have you studied Christianity for yourself? Have you taken it and gone, okay, here are, the, here are the claims of Christ. Here's the testimony of Scripture. Here's the testimony of history. Here's the testimony of respected people in my life. Have you done the hard work of just studying Christianity for yourself? Or are you regurgitating things that people have told you? That people just say, oh, it's just this, or it's just that, or don't do that. or you know, They're just throwing things at you, and you just kind of regurgitate that and go, oh, yeah, I don't believe it. Have you done the hard work of researching the Word of God, the testimony of Scripture. Because if you have, if you have, then you need to consider the implications of what the Word of God teaches. You need to consider the implications that salvation is found in no one else but in the name of Jesus Christ. You need to consider the implication of the fact that God is a holy God who is just and righteous, and because it is who He is to His core, He must punish sin. You have to consider that. And if that is true, you have to consider the implication. That means that none of us stand innocent before the holy God. We all stand deserving punishment. We all stand deserving his wrath. But the testimony of Scripture is that he sent his one son, Jesus Christ, who was holy, who was tempted in every way, but was yet without sin. What we talked about last week, he was sinless, and he came and he died on the cross in our place as our substitute, as our sacrifice. That all who would trust in him, all who would look to him might be saved. Well, why can we be saved by looking at a dead man on the cross? It's because the dead man on the cross didn't stay dead. He rose again, victorious over death. Because he is God. And so what is the implication of that? That Christ rose from the grave. You need to seriously consider that if you're a skeptic. You need to consider that. And all of those questions, all those considerations flow out of what Matthew's doing over and over and over again, showing that Christ came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. You need to consider that if you're skeptical. Now, this passage, there's two important concepts that we need to look at. Two important concepts. We're going to break it down into two chunks. The first is found in verses 12 through 17, and it's the idea that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. As a, as a young man, I did a lot of hunting and fishing, and I'll, I'll never forget one night we were trailing a deer. It was dark, and, and we trailed this deer for, I would say, an hour, hour and a half, maybe even two hours. I don't exactly recall how long, but, you know, we were trailing with flashlights, and we're looking down. The woods are very thick, and we finally recovered the deer, and when we did, we realized, I think there was four or five of us, we had this, this alarming realization that there were none of us who knew where we were. We had trailed and walked around in the woods for an hour and a half, two hours, and none of us knew where we were. <laughs> and I was pretty young at the time, but it was a frightening moment. I, I grew up in the woods. I, I don't get scared in the woods, but when you're in the woods in the dark, it can be a little alarming. And I'll never forget us trying to figure out where do we do, which way do we walk, do we walk, do we just stay here? And we started doing some walking and, and looking, and I, I'll never forget the, the time where a friend of mine said, hey, I see, I see the light. I see the light, and if you've ever been in the dark, in like deep dark woods at night, you know it's just, just, just dark, it's overwhelming darkness, but you'll see a break, and what that break is if there's a field. So if there's a field, you can see kind of the light of the horizon, and he saw that because the trees weren't there, and when he saw that, there was hope for us, and so we went to that field, that opening, we got there, and then he said, oh, I know where we are, we're da-da-da-da-da, you don't really care where we were, but he figured it out, 
And you know what we did at that point? I didn't go, well, you go ahead and go that way. I'm going to keep wandering around in here, right? I didn't do that. I said, all right, I'm right behind you. (laughs) And we walked, and we were out of there because he knew where we were. We followed him. Listen, we come to this passage, 1217, we're we're introduced to an important theme that's really all throughout Scripture, but especially in the coming of Christ, and this, this idea of darkness and light. Darkness being separation and lostness from God and light being found, being brought life and righteousness and guidance in Christ. In darkness, we are lost, but when we are found, we are found by the light of Christ. And it says in verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That idea of darkness, you, you think of separation from God, you think of being in bondage you, to sin, you think of being dead in sin, being lifeless. It conveys this idea of impaired vision, that you can't see where you need to go. You can't see as far as you need to see. You, you're just impaired. You're even blinded. You have no guidance. It's, it's, it's kind of this, this idea of this luminous shadow that, that he gives here when he talks about, in, in verse 16, those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death. It's that illustration that, that I think J.R. Tolkien just beautifully pictured in Lord of the Rings of Mordor and the, the darkness that's cast from Mordor and the looming shadow, the closer and closer and closer you get to Mordor, this looming shadow of death and evil that grows. They live and they dwell in this shadow of death. It's the shadow of death that Psalm 23 speaks of, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. A dark time, an ominous time, a tragic time. But in the coming of Christ, what do we have? In the coming of Christ, those dwelling in darkness of what? They've seen a great light. Matthew writes that with emphasis. It's a a great light, not just any light. It's not just a light that they would normally go see, but this is a great light. And light in Scripture talks about life, vision, guidance, growth, freedom, salvation. The the light of God's salvation shone forth in the coming of Christ is what we see here, that those dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and that light is the coming of the Messiah. Just hear some of this, that this great light that dawned as being Christ, Luke 179. Zechariah, when he prophesies that the Messiah would come, he says that the Messiah would give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. We go over to the, the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. We read that in him, referring to Jesus, so in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We get down to verse 9 of chapter 1 in the book of John, and we read that the true light, talking about Jesus, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The passage we meditated on, we're actually coming back to this passage a lot, as it brings together the whole concept of light and following. But John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then we read in John 12, 35 to 36, where Jesus refers to himself as the light, saying that the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is the light of the world. So much so, we fast forward, and John gives us a picture of the end times, of glory that Christ revealed to him. It says in heaven, we're told, and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that drowns out, that casts out darkness. So what does that mean? What, what does it mean for, for if Jesus is the light? What does it mean? What does he do as the light? Now, I think back on, on John 14, 6, a, a very well-known verse, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? He doesn't necessarily say light there, but we understand that Jesus is the light, and as the light, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we think about light, and we understand that light does each of those things. Light reveals truth it reveals the way it reveals life and we see that in the life of christ so first thing that jesus does as a light is he exposes sin by revealing truth jesus exposes sin by revealing truth in john 3 19 to 21 we read this the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus exposes sin by revealing the truth. You, you know that light can be difficult at times, right? You know this. I, I used to love as a you know, a, a little way of enacting revenge on teenagers when I was a student pastor is we were on a trip and they were all sleeping because they stayed up late and, you know, adults, we get up early. And so you get up early and they're all sound asleep. It's dark. And what do you do? You flip the light on, buddy. <laughs> you know, and they're all like, yeah! you know, doing the whole I'm a mole and I haven't seen light for years. And they're struggling to see in that moment. They hate it. Light is difficult when it shines forth on darkness. The truth can be difficult when it shines forth on your sin. And some of you know that. Some of you living in sin and the truth of Scripture confronts you in that. And some people, that's why they don't follow Christ. Because when the truth of Scripture confronts sin, they don't want to give up that sin. So some of you are holding on to sin and you're being blinded by truth. You don't want to see it because the light is difficult at times. But that doesn't mean it should be rejected. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It means it's revealing something that needs to be revealed. The truth may be hard, but it is life in Christ. So Christ exposes sin. The second thing is Jesus, the light of the world, gives guidance by revealing the way. He gives guidance by revealing the way. We see, think back on, on Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Do you remember what Jesus said about the way of, of righteousness, the way of eternal life? He says the gate is wide and the way it is easy that leads to destruction, but and those who enter into it are many. He says, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So we have this choice of a, of a narrow way or a, a wide path, right? Now, if we think about that, we remember Jesus' teaching on that. Then we remember what he said in John eight twelve. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We will not walk in darkness, but he will reveal the way. Why? Because he is the way. He is the way. In John 14, before you get to verse 6, when, when Jesus is talking about leaving and departing the disciples, he's asking, is Thomas, am I not mistaken? Thomas asked him, Lord, show us the way. We don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. He says, oh, you know it. I'm the way. I am the way. He reveals the fact that he is the way. 
But we need the light of Christ to come into our lives that we would know that and understand that. He reveals the way of salvation, which is through Him, through Christ. The third thing, Jesus, the light of the world, defeats death by bringing life. Revealing that life is in Him and no other. He displayed His death-defeating power in rising from the grave. And He continues day by day displaying His death-defeating power and bringing dead people to life in Christ. Those who are dead in their sins, those who are lost in their transgressions, He brings them to new life in Christ. New life in Christ. That's why we read John 1, 4-5, that Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. Life and light go hand in hand. Where Jesus is, there is light, and where there is light, there is life. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world, and in Him is life because He is the life. He is the life. This is why. This is why we boldly proclaim Jesus Christ in this place. We're not proclaiming my ideas or my opinions or any political agenda or any, any tips or wisdom of man. We proclaim Christ because everything else is going to fall short. Everything else will leave you lacking, but we proclaim Christ just as Paul did in 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 5, and 6. Listen to what he says. Jesus is the light, right? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that salvation is found. It is in Christ that eternal life is found. And Jesus is Lord. And we need him to shine the glory of God in the face of Christ in our hearts. We need him to do that. That's why Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2.9. He talks about when we're saved, when the people of God have been saved because God brought them out of darkness into his marvelous light. The, the very fact that we've been saved means that we've been taken from darkness into light. It's the same thing Paul, Paul writes about in Colossians 1, 12 and 14. He says, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred it, us into the kingdom of his beloved. I'm talking about Christ. We've been transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Christ, in whom we have what? In whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Paul writes. We have redemption. We've been redeemed by Christ. We've been forgiven by Christ. Listen, the darkness that you live in outside of Christ cannot be taken away by religion. It, it can't be taken away by just coming to church. It, it can't be taken away by being a good person. It's only removed and cast away by Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. And whoever believes in him will never walk in darkness. But he is life. Now, John 8, 12 talks about light and talks about following. And that's what we see in the second passage. We see this, this whole idea of, of following Christ, verse 18 to 22, this, this call to follow him, right? He sees uh, the, the, the four different men 
in this passage, this account from Matthew, and each call or each time he calls them, follow me, and they respond. I, I want to just so, show you three things. There are three things that we should notice from 18 to verse 22. The, the first thing is we need to know, notice who was called. Who, who were the men who were called? You have, you have four men, four fishermen here, because Galilee and Capernaum was an area where fishing had really risen in influence and prominence as, as a very important industry. And so fishermen were common. There were a lot of people there fishing. And, and so he calls four fishermen, four average, normal people, right? But he uses them in extraordinary ways. Andrew, we, we see here that he calls Andrew. Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist, did you know that? He was a disciple of John the Baptist, and he begins following Christ, we learn in John, when the second time that John the Baptist looks and he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And at that point, G- uh, Andrew has heard this once. The second time he hears it, you, you kind of in your mind, when you read John 1 and you come across this passage, you get the idea and you see Andrew's probably going, I'm going with him, <laughs> you know. And so Andrew follows Christ at that point, the, the Lamb of God. Andrew is the one who, who brings Simon. He continues to bring people to Christ. Andrew, in fact, is the one who brought uh, the little boy with the five loaves and the two fishes to Jesus. When everybody's going, what are we going to do? Andrew says, well, there's a kid over here with some bread and fish, <laughs> you know. And he brings him to Jesus. Simon is Simon Peter. We know a lot about Simon Peter. He wrote some letters in the New Testament. He really becomes what many would say or who many would say is the leader of the apostles. He's the one who gives that great confession of faith about Christ in Matthew 16, about who he is as the Messiah. James would go on to be the first apostle martyred in Acts 12, dies for his faith in Christ, his confidence in Christ, his testimony of Christ. John goes on. John is the one who evidently, the the disciple, the apostle who lived the longest, But we know John, why? Because he wrote the fourth gospel. He wrote three other letters. Then he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he goes on to write the Revelation. And so we see that these men are regular, ordinary men. They're fishermen. They're not not the bottom of society. They're they're men living and making a living. They're they're men even... that later in the Gospels talks about that they left and there were servants. They left, the, the sons of Zebedee left, the, uh, left their father with the servants that were helping them. So obviously this was a pretty good industry, a pretty good job that they had, a family business. And they left it because Christ called them. You, you need to understand, here's what we need to see, is they, they're not renowned theologians, they're not religious zealots, they're just regular men doing a regular job. And we see this all through Matthew. As we study Matthew, we're going to see and continue to see that the call of God on our lives knows no ethnic bounds, religious bounds, socioeconomic bounds, gender bounds, or political bounds. The call of Christ is to all who would respond to him in faith. We read that, John three sixteen. Right? For God so loved just part of the world or just these people out of the world. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, that only these people, only the people that look like this or think like that believe in him. No, for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? The call of Christ is for all. So you're not too good, too bad, too special, too normal, too rich, too poor for God. If God calls, respond in faith to him. Respond in faith. The second thing we need to notice is we need to notice what the call was. What is the call? Agree with me? Uh, Be okay with me? Wear a t-shirt for me? No, the call is follow me. 
The call is follow me. That call is to live as he lived, to do as he does, and to believe what he teaches. It's to submit to him and his authority. It's to trust him as Lord. And it's something I think we miss sometimes in our day. You know, it's just to check a box. It's just walk an aisle. What? No, it means to follow Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you just kind of this fan? Like, I'm a, a fanboy of Jesus. Are you a follower? But listen to how Scripture describes being a follower. In Matthew 8, 18 to 22, this is all out of the Gospels, what we learn about what does it mean to follow Christ. A scribe came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. What do we learn from that? We can't like break all these down, but we learn here that following means complete commitment, complete allegiance to Him. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, it means complete commitment to Him. In Mark 8, 34-37, we read, in, the call, in calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone, anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If anyone, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This isn't some add-on. This is complete sacrifice that we would sacrifice everything to follow him. That I would deny everything about who I am and follow Christ and exalt Christ and be one who lives like Christ lived and does like Christ did and believes what Christ taught and my hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. It's not in what I can do. We read in Luke 5, 27 and 28. It says he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Anybody know who Levi is? Matthew. Very good. He's Matthew. So Luke's telling us about Matthew. Matthew's going to tell about his own conversion later <laughs> when he follows. But we do Luke right now. Luke 5.27. He sees Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he says to him, follow me. And what does Matthew do? What does Levi do? Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. In Luke 18.22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. He's talking to the rich, man, rich young ruler. One thing you lack. See all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What do we learn here? We learn that, that, there, that it is giving all to Christ. That there's nothing that we would say, okay, I'm, I, mm, I want to follow you, but I'm going to follow you and I'm going to hold on to this stuff. Like, I want to make sure that I don't need to get rid of that. So I'm just going to kind of follow you and throw the rest of the stuff in my backpack and make sure I keep it with me because it really means a lot to me. No, following Christ means be willing to give it all. Be willing to give it all. John 10, 4. We learn that obedience is essential. He says, when he had brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. They obey him. Why? Because they know his voice. In John 12, 25 to 26, we read, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We value 
Christ. We treasure Christ above all else. And we follow him. We serve him because we long for him. We desire him. We delight in him. In John 21, 18 to 19, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you, you let me back up. You know what this is? This is at the end of the Gospel of John. He's talking to Peter. This is the passage where he says, feed my sheep. He says, do you love me? Oh, of course I love you. And he says, well, then feed my sheep. And he's talking to Peter. And Peter comes to this point where at the end, and Jesus looks at him and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now listen to what Jesus says. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Jesus, the risen son of God, looks at Peter and says, listen, there was a day where you did whatever you wanted to. You determined everything you did. But there's going to be a day where you have no power and no authority, but those who do have power and authority, they're going to take you, and they are going to determine how you die. You're going to look death right in the eye, and it's going to be because of me. And you're going to die. You're going to be stretched out. History tells us that in that moment when Peter is to be stretched out and to cruci- be crucified, Peter says, I don't want to be crucified like my Lord, and they crucify him upside down. And following that, Jesus says, follow me. We follow Christ even in the face of death. We follow him because he is the risen Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So you need to see and understand today that the call to follow me was not this. It was not be religious. It was not clean up your act. It was not do these things. It was not prove yourself worthy. It was not show me what you know. It was not follow when it's convenient, follow when it's easy, follow when it's popular or profitable, or follow just for a little while and later don't worry about it. Or follow later, don't worry about it now. You can just come back to it. No, the call is to follow me, to sacrifice all, to turn from all and follow me. Just follow him, to be a follower. You know what? Following isn't all bad. There's great blessing in following Christ. Sometimes we can think about all those passages and go, man, that's a lot of radical bad stuff. There's great blessing in following Christ too. John 8, 12, we've already talked about it. It says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, what? Will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. In Matthew 4, 19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What a great and incredible thing to follow Christ and to see him use you to change people's lives. That, that is, I hope you've had that experience. If not, I hope you'll be so bold in your witness and so bold in your life for Christ that you'll tell people about Christ and you see God change their lives. Is that is a great moment where somebody goes, oh, I just can't tell you how grateful I am for da-da-da-da-da, and you're sitting there going, God is awesome. <laughs> God is awesome. Great and mighty is our God. Thanks be to God because he does those things. He saves you. He works in your life. He says, I will make you a fisher of men. Or we read in, in Mark 10, 28 to 30, you're worried about, oh, what I might give up, what I might lose. Is it really worth it? Peter had that moment. And Peter said, what, what about us? Like, we've given everything to follow you, Jesus. There's that moment where, where Peter, Mary, he's nice and bold. He says, we've given everything. We followed you, he says in verse 28. This is Mark 10. 
In verse 29, he says, Jesus replies to him, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, with persecutions, that's an important thing in there, and in the age to come eternal life. Oh, the, the blessing of following Christ is so rich. We don't follow Christ for the blessings of Christ. We follow Christ because of Christ. We follow Christ because Jesus is worth it, because we value him. But you need to know that there is nothing you can give up to follow Christ that he doesn't just blow out of the water by his immense value. Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. I can testify to you today that leaving mother and father and family and home you come and Christ overwhelms you and blesses you with hundredfold mothers and brothers and sisters and a home because I'm looking at you and I can testify to you that there is certainty and eternal life that we have in Christ that anything that we can give up we have eternal life that is an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading peter says that in first peter 1 verse 3 all the riches that are in christ any sacrifice you make to follow him is always worth it always worth it and so finally i want you to see this this morning notice the response of those who were called look at the response in matthew 4 verse 20 their response is immediately they left their nets and followed him it's the same response that Matthew had, we read in Luke, right? When Jesus calls Matthew, immediately he followed. In Matthew 4, same thing, John and James. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You know what we learn from this? Answering the call to follow Jesus may mean, it may mean, leaving a job or career. It may mean leaving home. It may mean leaving your possessions. I, I, can, I can tell you that following Christ in my life meant leaving architecture. I was studying architecture. I can tell you it meant leaving coming Georgia as my home. I can tell you it has meant leaving some of my possessions, not all. I can tell you that leaving or following Christ for Many that I know, it has meant leaving all their possessions behind. What I can guarantee you is this. Is it may mean those things, but it will always mean living for God's glory and not your own. For every follower of Christ, it means living for His glory and not your own. It will always mean pursuing holiness. There is no believer, no follower of Christ that is not called to live holy for his glory. And it will always mean making Christ known to be a fisher of men. So where does that leave us today? It leaves us, there's two categories. We've talked about this before. You're either an unbeliever or a believer here. There's no in-between. And so if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you're not a follower of Christ, then you need to know that Jesus is the light of the world and that those who follow him will no longer walk in darkness. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
And salvation is found in no other than Him. And so the, the call, the gospel we see in Scripture is to repent and believe, repent and trust in Christ. The one who calls you out of darkness into life. The one who releases you from bondage to freedom. The one who takes you from death to life. The one who shows mercy to those who once knew no mercy. And the one who is the way, the truth, and life. For the rest of you, you're, you're believers. And, and I think for us, is to really step back and, and examine and, and think about how am I following Christ? Am I following Him wherever He leads? Am I, am I really committed to Him? Or are there things that have come into my life that I'm holding on to and I'm grasping to and I'll, I'll follow Him this far but not that far? Are, are you ready to follow Christ wherever He leads? Maybe that's a, a new thing here. Maybe that's a new ministry or new mission here that He's leading in your life. Are you going to follow Him in that area? What if, what if uh, sitting amongst us today is one that, that God is calling into vocational ministry? Are you willing to follow Him? In our, in our time, we, we paused and prayed this morning before the service, and, and I couldn't remember, so I asked Pastor Ricky. I said, Ricky, how old were you when you came to Christ and then went into ministry? Ricky came to Christ at the age of 36, he surrendered to ministry when he was 38. I, I value that and appreciate that. Perhaps that's someone here. Ricky was a successful businessman at that point in his life. Maybe there's some of you who you're in a spot where you're a successful businessman or you're, you, everything is set and it's just kind of how it is and you know that God has been working and calling in your life to, to go into ministry, to, to go into missions, to leave this and go here. Are you going to follow? Are you going to follow? Jesus is the light of the world. And the call that he makes is follow me. Follow me. A call that is not easy. But a call that is absolutely worth submitting to. Let's pray. Father, we bow and give you praise today. God, I thank you for that simple call to follow Christ. I thank you for your word that makes it clear who he is, what it means to follow. God, I pray for friends here who are unbelievers. God, perhaps they've been skeptical. Perhaps they're just buying into lies. Perhaps they're holding on to sin. I don't know. God, I pray that you would work in their lives, open their eyes, shine forth the light of Christ in their lives, that they might trust you. And God, I, I pray that, that those of us who are yours, that are followers, God, I know just from my own life, God, there are times where it's difficult. There's times where I get too attached to something or, or I, I get off 
off path, so to speak, and get distracted and enamored by something. God, I pray that you would set our gaze on you and on you alone. That, God, you would increase our heart's affections for you. That we would long for you and desire you and delight in you. So much so that, God, wherever you call, God, we would follow whatever that looks like. God, give us faith to follow in the ins and outs of life for your glory, for our good. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.